HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, Heritage Radio Network podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Jordan Salcido. We'll talk to Jordan about Ramona and a lot more. We'll taste the little spritz for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Jordan Salcido is a seasoned wine veteran, having worked with David Chang at Momofuko and Daniel Hum at 11 Madison. She's an award-winning sommelier, entrepreneur, and most importantly, a mom, finding that life-work balance. Jordan is the founder and CEO of Drink Ramona, an early entry into the portable canned wine segment with her organic wine spritzes from Italy. Jordan lives in New York City with her husband, Robert Bohr, and her two sons. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Jordan. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. All right. So we are talking to Jordan face-to-face, which is fun, um, from the Heritage Radio Network Studios at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, Jordan, a reminder, you were here on the podcast back in 2017. Wow. Is that crazy? And you were just getting Ramona started. I think you started in 16 yeah. or 17. Exactly. So it'll be fun to catch up on, you know, a lot of fronts and everything. So before we get into Ramona, um, I want to get your perspective on a bunch of things. Life, work, balance. I want to talk a little about the industry that I cover you work in. Um But now that you're a mother of two, wife, daughter, 
entrepreneur, other things, etc. Tell me how you find that proper life-work balance. And that's the assumption that you have. Have you? Because, I didn't mean to interrupt, it's been years since you've had the business. It's been years since you've had kids. It's not like you have two infants. You know, you're kind of rolling. And I think you recognize how important life is where you need to find that. So I'm curious how you find that balance. Oh, my goodness. All right. So, no, I I think that's so well said. And it's such a a question that comes up a lot Mm -hmm. and something I think a lot about. And I think um, I feel very fortunate because I... I feel as though Ramona is my purpose. So I think that um, that drives me. There's an internal drive. I would say Ramona is my work purpose and being a mother is my sort of my soul purpose as well. Like uh, it feeds my soul. And, and I think for me, all of these things are important and therefore I'm not interested in giving up any piece of them. And I, I do think that um, you know, everyone has a different path and everyone has different choices. And, and for me, I think a, a few things. One is that my husband is a very true partner in every sense of the word. So yes, we have disagreements and we talk through them, but Robert is very much a life partner in parenthood and he's a sounding board if I want to talk through something. So there's there's the piece of this, which... I think also Robert and I were married for seven years before we had children. So Mm. we had a lot of time to really get to know each other and, and feel very strong in our marriage and make sure that we worked out any kinks that, that really needed working out. And then, and then it's just so interesting with, with Ramona, Ramona and Henry sort of happened at the same time, not by design. It was sort of, I almost think of it as like divine intervention in a funny way. So, But when you say not by design, I mean, when you have a kid, you think about it. Oh, 100%. I mean, you can't control exactly when, but you say, let's try to have a kid. Yeah. So at that period, the Ramona thing was floating around. So you knew that they well, were going to converge quickly. Yes. So the idea for Ramona had sort of been swimming in my subconscious and sometimes it would pop up to my conscience, but we were opening and I was at Momofuku at the time we were opening and reopening co. So it was when we moved from the original location to the extra place location. And Dave Chang's mandate to me was, Hey, Jordan, Build me a great wine program. Uh, people always think about Ramona or um, Momofuku in terms of great food. I want them to start thinking about Momofuku in terms of great wine, and this is your chance to do it. And so it was full on, and it was an amazing. So up until then, they didn't get the rap for the wine being as good as it should be. That was what Dave said when he hired me. He was like, look, I sort of, I dismissed wine as important for the restaurants for a long time. Sure. It was, you know, a a thing that if, you know, if somebody was interested in wine, that was fine, but I didn't want to, I didn't believe that it was important to invest in wine 
the same way. And now I see that there is this subculture and there's this culture of wine and there are collectors who will go to places that have great lists and that, right. and people that do value great glassware and all of these things that had been part of my training at 11 Madison Park and just my life in general. And so Dave, when I, when I took the position back in 2013, Dave's mandate was, build me a great wine program. And the first project was Ma Pesh. We said, hey, we have this big wine cellar. It's in Midtown. Like, we really should capture some of this market. So we we redid the Ma Pesh wine list and, and all that. But really, like, the big project that I got to build from the ground up was this new co. And so that we opened co and moved it um, fall of 2014 and the, the process and the sort of all of the pieces leading up to that. It's just very all-consuming opening a restaurant, especially a restaurant with... When you talk about that wine list, you know, you look back and I'm forcing you to describe it. I mean, what was it? Was it like a, a Francophile list? Was it oh, Italian? No. Was it eclectic? Oh, yeah. Did natural wine start sneaking in? I mean, wh oh, yeah. what's the elevator pitch on what that of list course. was? So that list was best of the best, super editorial and curated. And for me, what's always important about a great wine program, like a list of wines is not interesting. Anyone can put together a list of wines. So it's really, what is the purpose of your list and what wines are you able to source? And, you know, because because now consumers are smart and they're savvy and they know what wines they're looking for. So I felt like it was my job as, as the wine director of that group and, and f with a focus on this restaurant to put together the greatest collection of wines that I could, but also in service to the restaurant itself and with the same vision. And so I remember actually this one dish that... Um, went on to the very first iteration of the tasting menu, and it was um, uni with uh, this chickpea hoson, but it was an iteration of a dish that Dave had tried when he went to Liguria that was this ruby red shrimp with, and I don't, I think it was chickpeas and it was umami, and it was something that reminded him of this dish <laughs> that eventually ended up as this um, this uni with chickpea hoson, and that that for me was, was such a reflection of not only co, but but also every great restaurant that I had ever been part of where there's an idea and usually it starts with something that already exists, something that some other great chef has already created and then the idea and the knowledge is passed down and iterated on and so that was the way that I wanted to think about the list at Co. So the way that we structured it um, I decided it was only going to be benchmark producers because at, at Co, you know, it's a tasting mm. menu and it's not like, oh, I'm in the mood for fried chicken. It's like, no, right. you, you order, you, you get what you get. You sit down and these dishes have been refined and edited and iterated upon. And so with the wine list, the way I wanted to look at it was anything great, like what was greatness? And it could either be a classic benchmark greatness or somebody who is who I believed was going to be great in the future and had learned from one of these greats and was there for sort of an iteration of this body of knowledge. And a great example of that um, was Anselm Solos, who... Um, okay. Right, you know, so, but it's like, well, where did Anselm Solos come from? Sure, here he is in the Cote de Blanc, but how did Anselm Solos become... So the story was as much 
the story and the and the why and the where. And so it was like, right. turns out that Anselm Solo's father sent him south to Burgundy. So he trained with Anne-Claude Lefebvre and <laughs> Jean-Francois Coche and Dominique Lafon. And then, you know, working with Chardonnay, on, grown on limestone. And then he goes back to uh, Aviz and he is realizing that, hey, I blend my grapes or I sell them. And like, why can't there be... Uh, why can't we think about vintage in the same way? We're growing the same grape in very similar soil, not the same kind of limestone, but limestone nonetheless. And and that was something very, that that moment and that that educational experience then produced or helped produce or at least spurred into action the grower champagne movement as we think of it today. And then you know, all the people that have trained with Solosa or people who've trained with Provost, or, you know, it's just right. now there. So that was the way that we built the list. It was like, okay, sure, we'll have, you know, the, we can, we'll have our Grand Marks and we had a collection of the Grand Marks on the list as well. But what was so interesting to me was what is greatness and who learned, like who teaches greatness and who learns from it and how does greatness sort of iterate along the way through generations and that was the way that I thought about that list that that's a pretty uh, pretty cool premise you know you the focus is kind of like the biggest and the best the food is well thought out so you only get a few at bats yeah. for each you know type of wine yes. of course and yes. I, I like that I is is not hard as it sounds it's pretty hard. Um, let me take you back a little to the work-life thing. Because um, you didn't have a kid when oh, you were doing that, right? Right. No, so I, we were building Co and opening Co. And then I was also, this was back in my my days where I, I really felt like it was important for me to have the credential of Master Sommelier. So I had gone up through that the court and I at this point at the point where I was opening co had passed the blind tasting on my first try and had to pass theory so the, the three sections three sections tasting mm -hmm. theory is all the info yep. and then service exactly okay so where are we at and with so the funny thing about this was I remember I was on the floor every single night in you know for source for service at the restaurant at co and I remember Bobby Stuckey came in with Danette and with his team and he uh, sat at the, the counter and, and I poured pairings and he at the end of that meal said, you know, I'm going to tell everyone I know that the best beverage experience in America is happening here at Co right now. Um, and it was just such an he amazing knows. compliment. And it was just, it was so nice to hear that feedback from somebody who I have always admired and had such respect for. And then I think it was maybe two or three weeks after that is when the exam happened. And I had really just poured myself into sort of, you know, opening the restaurant, being at the restaurant and then studying when I wasn't at the restaurant. And so I end up passing theory with flying colors and I'd already passed the tasting, but then I end up resetting and not passing service because of one table in the exam. And this a group of judges decided that I did not pass because I didn't seem like myself to them. However, none of them have ever seen me work in a restaurant. And it was a day where I've never felt more like myself. And so I didn't know what to do with that feedback. At first I was stunned. And then 
And then the more I thought about it, it's like, wait a minute, you know, I've taken this exam a few times and I've come up through, you know, all the exams you have to pass along the way. And I've always been given feedback that I can do something with, but there's nothing you can do with feedback that says, well, we, as people who don't actually know you, we just didn't think you seemed like yourself at our one particular table. That's kind of a weird criticism anyway. I think so. Especially if they don't know. Yes. And I think... Was it that or was that BS? Well, I think that was the thing where it was like, I mean, since then, in the years following, that's where they dealt with the cheating scandal. Well, I wanted it (laughs) so down the line i had a question (laughs) the question was does certification matter anymore certainly you can get a job and get paid without it um as far as what it did for you the studying and being able to you know learn all of that yeah doesn't matter anymore because you i brushed you off quickly but there's been sex scandals cheating scandals all kinds of so so the court of master sommeliers is tainted is that and, you know, we went through COVID, the world has changed. Does not matter anymore? You know, and that was I, my take on it. I, I, my take on it is no, in no way does it matter. I think it's stifle. I think it provides a structure for people who want that structure to learn and don't have access to maybe the great wines. We're really fortunate in New York to have such a, a burgeoning wine market where every wine producer does want to be here. And, and so it's a very active community. But I think for me, what was so great about that feedback, which actually was delivered by a woman. And I share that because I really had to unpack it. And it's like, you know, like, you know, there are what, 30, there, there are not very many women in the court. And it's, you know, so I think for this particular person, it was sort of an example to me that like, wow, this person, her entire identity must be so wrapped up in this that she has to keep other women out so that she can be. You think it was that? I do. I really do. I mean, I think I don't, I, I really do. And I so on top of everything, you have that kind of attitude by someone. Which I think was a gift because for me, then it, it just made me sort of look in the mirror and say, do I want to be part of this organization? Well, an unintended gift. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, it worked. It did. And then at the same, it turned out that you know, five days later, I was um, at this wedding. It was in, in Italy for a wedding. And I just felt different. It was like my body was like, something's up. And it turns out I was pregnant with Henry. And so I sort of, it was like the birth, it was like the death of what I thought was my dream. There was a day, a time, a moment where you knew there was this transformation. Crazy, but Physically, right? I mean, you should, and why wouldn't you? But it's funny that- No, I was on a run in Florence with my high school best friend who lives there. And I remember just stopping. We got to the top of this hill and I was like, she has two children who are much older. And I said, Kate, I think I might be pregnant. And then anyway, I was. So, um, so did once you knew you were pregnant and you were deep into the industry, now that you're pregnant and you start feeling it physically and you know, you're going to have a kid. Does that change the way you want to think about where you're going and what you want to do? I mean, you could tool around on the floor and everything, but now your life, I mean, what does that solidify the Ramona thing or does that open up not even Ramona yet, but I got to do something. I mean, what does that do to you? I mean, that's a life changing thing in two ways. Yes. 
physically and becoming a mom and then what you want to do with your life. So what do you want to do with your life? And I think you said everything right there where it's like, okay, the world, my world is going to change. How do I, like, how do I want to show up in the world and what is, what is it that I'm doing and what is it that, and, and does my current schedule work? Because at Co, I would get home at two or three in the morning because we would close the restaurant right. and then we would debrief and all these things. So it's like, that's, that's not probably going to be my reality, but <laughs> <You think? laughs> and, and I don't want it to be like, I, I don't, I want to, I don't know what I'm going to want because you don't know in that, in those months. But I think what became really clear and in this way, I think I, I think of pregnancy for, at least for me, it's a really creative time where it's like, A, there's a clock ticking and maybe it's because I've always been like good with a deadline. It's like, okay, if there's a deadline looming, I will get the thing done. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But uh, I say that now thinking of a deadline that I'm missing. (laughs) So was the Ramona idea floating by then? It was floating, but it hadn't taken shape. But does, does the pregnancy thing say, I gotta, this is what I'm doing. Yes. Yes. And I had allocated so much time and mind space to this exam. And then the exam right. is over. You're preoccupied with yes. that. And it's like a trend. Boy, if you knew now what you knew then, screw that. You put more time towards Ramona. <laughs> you would have sold it to Constellation for $140 million. <laughs> But that's okay. We're all happy. Right? And so I think, yeah, it's a, I believe in divine timing. I mean, maybe maybe it's a foolish thing to believe in, but I think as I get older, I just, I, it's like that happened at exactly the right moment and I sort of needed this. Yeah, anyway, so I think Henry and Ramona are inextricably linked in this way. And so I think, and, and Henry knows that. And so he's, it's really cute. He loves Ramona because he feels responsible yeah, for Yeah, I it. mean, two nothing's more valuable than your family and your kids. But Ramona is also another baby. The way they are kind of linked is, you know, pretty cool. Um, I guess when you sell Ramona, you're going to have to put Henry up for adoption. (laughs) Sad, so probably you shouldn't have to sell it. Um, I'm curious about this too. Quickly, don't dwell on this too much. Walk me through... I'm jumping ahead because, you know, Ramon is established. You're running it. It's doing well. Your kids are getting older. Walk me through like a typical day. You get up what time? What are you doing with the kids? <laughs> I, I'm more curious about that than anything. Oh my you know, are you obviously COVID? You work from home. I want to ask yeah. you how that changed your habits. Yep. You know, I know you have an office. Tell me just because you said when you worked the floor, you'd get home late. Yeah. I think you have better control of that. So much but what's, control. give me a snapshot. Yeah. Okay. So this morning I was up at five because Ronan was up at five. But I was, Typical or not that no, early? Okay. No, normally it's like 6.30, okay. which is so much more reasonable. Um, five was early. And so then, yeah, today actually... Yeah, the first thing I, I was he okay? I mean, he was, was he? Fine. He just he just got up. He fell asleep early last night. So he got up early. So he got up early. Okay. Exactly, because it's it's great when he falls asleep early the night of, but then you pay for it the next day. Right. Um, so, can't have it all. <laughs> you can't have it all. So that today was an early one. I always make chai tea. It's actually something that I learned for you for me, and okay. uh, this was something that I learned from our nanny who is an integral part of the work-life balance question. And our nanny is named Lamo, and she's from Tibet. And she 
is amazing. She's really this. Did she recently move in with you? She moved in during COVID, but then she moved out. Oh, okay. So we all lived together when we ended up sort of, we we lived in the Hamptons um, during COVID. You got away the summer of COVID. Exactly, exactly. And um, actually, our nanny Lamo has a daughter of her own who was with her husband in Nepal, and then wow. they got stuck over there for Oof. six months. And so the six months that her daughter and husband were in Nepal were the six months that she stayed with she you. She stayed with us, and so it was like a morning ritual that um, she initially taught me how to make this. There's a butter tea that, that yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that you know that. Yeah, and it's. It was a thing. It's still around, but it's not as much of a thing. All right. So you have help, which is great. Yep. But the two of you have to get the, let's talk during a school year. Yeah. You got to get the kids out up the and out. Up, out the door. Hard, fed. easy. Totally depends on the day. And it's. Could vary. It can vary. And it's like having a child is also like looking in a mirror. And so Anytime there's pushback, it's like, well, what am I doing wrong? Like, what what have I done to create this equal and opposite reaction? <laughs> I very much believe that, at least with with our kids. And so their personalities personalities are completely different. Henry is more introverted. He's very cerebral. He's super thoughtful and very 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 sensitive. And Ronan is like this happy, smiley wrecking ball. And so the two of them get along really well most of the time. And uh, Ronan's very physical. Henry is physical, but in a clunkier way, I guess. He sort of is still learning his... Yeah, so it's it's just funny. Like, do you think that's age or that's the way he's built now? I think it's a little of both. Probably a little of both. Right, Ronan could potentially be the athlete. I think so. Okay. Yeah, Ronan. I could I could tell how much stronger Ronan was by how right. they would kick me when I was pregnant, <laughs> which is crazy to say, but that very is funny. very very true. Um, yeah, and so make them breakfast, and you know they'll have their little requests. I try to do a lot of baking with them on the weekends, I see so that. like. If it's waffles and then we can freeze them. And like I like to sort of have some quick weekday options. Um, I'll make granola. I'll make whatever it is. Um, actually, Robert ended up making pancakes this morning. For me, I like to I like to have a, a more regimented week weekday program. But um, <laughs> Robert made them. All right. So <laughs> you get them up. You get them dressed, you feed them. Yep. They have their personality traits. And then we walk to school. Okay. And um, is Ronan in any kind of school situation no, yet? No, not yet. So well, he stays home with. Yes, I, he does. He has like little classes. He has a, a bouncing, it's called bouncing babies. Right, activity-oriented <laughs> yeah, exactly. type stuff. Exactly. Keep them stimulated. But he missed the cutoff. So he's two and a half, but he he's a November baby. So he missed the cutoff for the, the sort of two-year classroom right. situation. So do you... Do you work from home? Do you go to the office? Are you at this point in a routine? I mean, you you move on and do what for the day? Yeah. Okay. So I would say like what I'll do, I also work a lot at night. Um, 
Like once the boys like sit in back. front of a computer yeah. or out talking to people. No, no, no. Sit okay. in front of a computer. So you do a lot of that's that's a sweet spot for you getting yes. work done. Yes. Because is that obviously because the kids are not necessarily around? Because the kids are in bed and right. they're sleeping, and I try. I actually, I think one of the things that was a, a benefit, at least for our family, of COVID was being together and not having these expectations of being out every night. And that's that is something that I tried. So to that I was going to ask you how COVID. COVID changed things. That was one of them. That was one of them. Yeah. Having to be home. Having to be home. And we were so lucky to have kids who are really young in COVID. Henry was four and uh, yeah, Henry was four, had just turned four and Ronan was four months. Yeah. Kid grew up through COVID. I know. I know. I wonder what he'll remember like 10 years from now. But it was, I think for me at least, like now I've been on the road a bunch. So this is actually the very first week where I haven't been in some other state, at least one other state. So last week was um, Boston, Rhode Island. So I want to come back to the rest of the day, although we covered it. But going on the road is seeing key clients. Yes. Distributors, stores. Yes whatever. I mean, really press in the flesh and yes. Well, and to your question, so basically Henry school starts at eight 45. So sometimes I take both boys yesterday, Henry really wanted everyone to join him. So we made it a family affair, but I'm back around nine 30. So my day like officially starts around nine 30. However, I'll get some stuff done in the morning if I if I need to, or else I'll just stay up late at night. So it's sort of that like sleeping right. time is always important <laughs> for, for me. And then, yeah, and then the, the day begins. Sometimes it's at the office. Sometimes I'm there working with my colleague, our, our director of ops, and we're sort of processing things like supply chain issues right now. Oof. Or, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's, I think, been a hot topic of conversation. Also, um, our blood orange flavor launches in Whole Foods, every Whole Foods with a wine license across the country starting tomorrow. Is that the first skew that is in Whole Foods across their board? So the very first time that happened and the only other time that happened was with our, with the ruby grapefruit, which you and I are drinking now. Right. Have a sip which was your in. first? Mm-hmm. This was the OG, and that um, ended up in the Whole Foods program in 2018, and that was the same the same program where um, I think it, that was called some, uh, something about summer, whereas this one is called best in class. So uh, no, it's it's really it's so exciting, and I can't underscore how important Whole Foods is. A good for, Whole Foods is a good. They're just wonderful. You know, just the sensibility and mentality and all of that. Yes. Um, you were on the road. Um, let's talk about life work balance on that. So you get out, see key clients, make yourself available, take information, you know, hear what people are saying and all that. What's it like? Is this the first time you were away for a long time? Yes. Well, and I wouldn't say a long time because what I... A week, right? Well, no, I have not gone away that long. What, What I'll do is a whole bunch of shorter trips. So it's like two days, one night. And then my husband, Robert, travels for his business as well. And so we just make sure that we're not traveling at the same time. Um, but yeah, so like I was in Seattle. and That's, it, that's a big trip. It's a, it's a longer trip, but it it's nice because when you go west, you get all that time back. Right, right, right. Versus when you come back east and then you sort of lose all that time. But, right. Um, the way... 
the way you do business now, was it changed because of COVID? Like, I'm not sure how you do your business would be the same if there wasn't COVID. Um, Is that better? I mean, the best thing, you know, chefs, psalms work crazy hours. The best thing that came out of COVID is I'm home spending time with my kids. You sort of had that built in, but how did things change because of that? Yes. So I was planning to travel a bunch in 2019, or rather 2020, and it was a gift in some ways. Not to be drawn away. To have to do that, exactly, because I had a four-month-old and Henry and so many things going on. So it was, for us, interesting. I mean, the immediate focus then became, okay, we have to figure out directly to consumer. We have to figure out e-commerce because nobody wants to leave their home and everybody wants everything delivered. So how did that go? You, so, you have the product yes. where that can work. Yes. So you refocus? Yeah. And so we had previously, the way that I've always thought about Ramona and the way in which we've seen it really work and resonate is when people discover it somewhere that means something to them. So I mean, it's rare to be discovered on a shelf at Kroger. Like that's not where there's an emotional connection. Whereas if it's at a restaurant that you love or an event that you love. And so events and activations, these were such an important part of of Ramona's sort of journey into a customer's awareness. And that all got shut off. And so everything then had to become Zoom tastings and, um, and yeah, just talking with- What, how- when you recognize what you had to do, you implemented what you thought was best. How was the business? How did the business go? Yeah. Was it down, flat, up a little? Because the obvious thing is people are home. Yes. They're going to drink. Did you have that positive effect? It was just so interesting. So the thing that had happened previously, we're like, okay, it's going to be our big distributors. It's going to be our Southern Wine and Spirits in Texas and our RNDC in California. And that's what's going to matter because these are big markets with big distributors. And what actually happened, and this was another thing that COVID allowed us to do, was sit and actually really analyze the data and see, wait a minute, that's not where, no, actually Southern and RNDC led go of their sales teams and didn't talk to Ah, us for six months. That's kind of obvious. It was kind of obvious. Yeah. Especially like tiny little Ramona. We're a small independent brand. No, they're going to prioritize their Jim Beams and their Budweiser's and their name brands. So where we, we ended up being flat, basically flat, but so much growth in markets we never had anticipated. And just like silence from what had previously been our most important markets. So you held on. We totally did. If if you knew then what you knew now, you would do it. A hundred percent. Because I want to talk about a little later, but, you know, marketing, I think, is a prowess that Ramona has, you know, really been good at. Um, We have to take a break soon. But before we take a break, um, wait, we didn't finish the routine. So kids are back home do stuff with them. Do you guys eat dinner together? Yeah, I really try to, but I would say we... So you'll make the effort, won't always happen. Correct. Put the kids to sleep, what time? So the kids go to sleep around 7.30. 
all right, and you potchka around, and then, like you said, 8, 9 o'clock, you could sit down and get... It's amazing what you could do in an hour, hour and a half, uninterrupted. Yes. You know, when you think about, well, it, from 9 to noon, I'll do this. Yes. Three, four hours. You get more done when you're focused. Yes. Um, all right, so that's your routine. I want to get your take on a few things about the business. Um, it seems to me, because I know a ton of people, that a lot of people that were in the SOM game left to do other stuff, yeah. mostly in wine, but a lot of people, you know, went to uh, other places. What do you think that is? Is it the grind and age? I mean, is that the primary thing? Yeah, I just think... You can't do this forever, right? It's really hard, especially when you see that there's a way out or another way. I mean, I say this, like, I'm thinking of, you know, part of it is... You know, you have to drink the Kool-Aid if you want to be a part of something like, I'm just thinking of like my days at 11 Madison Park. Right, you get so entranced and enthralled with it and you get so embedded. And you have to And then you live it for years and then you get older or you you get pregnant or whatever. Yeah, and then you realize, and I think that's part of why those things work is because you have to believe that that is the most important thing. And then the second that you get out of that, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Like, oh, I have shin splints, but I didn't even think about that. It's because I'm walking around. Right, you take for granted mobility. Yeah, exactly. But the funny thing is, you know, everything has a term or a progression. It's just... That job is is grueling in that sense. And you don't want to do it as a 44-year-old, you know, mom with high school, whatever it is. So yeah. it's, it's it's the obvious stuff. I'm curious. And everyone's different. I would say like that. No, no, I know. But believe me, there's common threads. Um, there was a time, and I think COVID changed it, where restaurants were palaces. Chefs became celebrities and even sommeliers became became rock stars or cool and i think social media contributed a lot you and i could do a whole show on social media we probably won't even scratch it um is the business gonna look like what you and i knew it to be are there gonna be five psalms at a restaurant um are the wine programs gonna be these big expensive overblown I, i mean do you is there going to be a shift, do you think? I think there is the shift already. Um, and I do have to say, like, one of the best things about traveling is like, getting to see how other cities do it because I think mean, New York is right. such a bubble. And so I was in Charleston about a month ago, and I was so impressed by the scene there. And it's there's so much going on. And, and Megan Mina, actually, so she was a sommelier at Carbone and a bunch of, and Charlie Bird, a bunch of places here in the city. And now she's running a program in Charleston at this beautiful historic hotel. But one of the things- Which one? Oh, I don't remember. Not the Dewberry. No. no, not the Dewberry. I can look it up. Bennett is new. No, it doesn't matter. Because um, we were just, Heritage was down there for the Wine and Food Festival. Oh, I love we that. We broadcast every year for like oh, five straight so cool. years. So we get all the Charleston people in, which is cool. I'll look it up on our um, um, break. So wait, what was the question? Oh, Psalms and Do changing. we see the business being what we thought it was? It's it's, it's going to be different, it's right? It's going to be different. I think especially with labor, like the labor changes, it's hard to get. I think you, what what... It depends on the kind of restaurant, but any- but if you could get labor, are you still going to put five psalms on the floor, or that concept is is probably gone. quite rare. Yeah, yeah, I don't see that having a burgeoning future. Um, yeah, because 
because of, of all the things that we've so just I think discussed. The pandemic shone a spotlight on how screwed up the industry was. And I think because of that and the fact that it wasn't run well, it's not going to return. Do you think, think New York first and then think outside of New York. Do you think, were you satisfied that women were thriving in the wine category? Oh, what a loaded question. I Kind think, of. Oh, my and goodness. And not an easy yes or no. I, I guess the indication is not as bad as it used to be or getting better. You know, there's no right answer. There's no right answer. And I think, I think if we zoom out, it's easy to put a focus on the wine industry, but it's really every industry in a certain way where it's yeah. like, okay, let's zoom out and look at sort of societal shifts and patterns and what needs to be looked at and worked through and perhaps undone a little bit. But I think, I think it always has to start with this concept of partnership, because if, you know, whether it's a, a partnership between an employer and employees, and I think that's, that's part of it. I also think the, a really big shift is when a woman becomes a mother and there's all the data that supports, like that's where the pay goes down. And that's, that's a, it's a, the a most difficult thing in business. Yes. To be a woman and then to become a mom. Yes. It's not a even game. But I think that is why I feel very fortunate to be able to be in control of my schedule in that way. Where like, right. And I think also, I mean, one great thing of whether it came from the restaurant industry or from my parents, but I think work ethic just matters. I think there's... Yeah, no coincidence with yeah. that. Things yeah. don't happen without hard work. Mm -hmm. if, <clears throat> if a younger woman came to you and said you know, I love wine and we had a tasting group in college and I worked at a restaurant. I think I want to pursue a career. Do you, are you neutral? Are you encourage it? You discourage it? I mean, after you ask all the questions, because yeah. in the old days you would have probably said, oh, this is cool. Now is it I, same enthusiasm? I mean, I really believe that everyone, you know, everyone is on their own path. Right. And so I too would, general of a question. Yes. It's to the individual. And to your point, I think I would really need to ask the question then and, and get at the why. Like, why is it that you want to be in this industry? Oh, because could I could be for the wrong reason. Yeah. And if right. it's for the right That's reason. That's a fair answer. And just because sort of, it was a broad question. Mm -hmm. All right. We have to take a break, but answer this question for me before we take the break. Um, have, from what you've seen, and your product, you know, kind of plays into this question, has demographics and taste in wine changed? I mean, is it obviously younger? Or is everyone drinking natural wine? I mean, what are you seeing within Ramona and just, you know, your connection to the market? Yeah, okay. I, I would say... I see a lot of different things. I think one one word that is the buzzword on everyone's lips is natural wine. And the thing that I'm quite happy that France actually codified a term for that, and that's only since 2020. So basically, this term that sort of sprung up into popular 
cultural lexicon and about Very the, controversial. Yeah, but, because it's meaningless but positive right. sounding in the way that like my sister and I, my sister thinks Honest Diapers is the stupidest name because it implies that all other diaper companies, right. not that we're talking about diapers. Or either. natural food in any natural supermarket. Food, what does exactly, that mean? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so- So and, go ahead. So I, I want, and actually I love whenever I'm talking, sometimes I'll do like a staff training for friends who- who want me to talk with their their wine teams. And I love this Ariana Okipinti quote. And she's, you know, such a darling of of this natural wine world. Terrific winemaker, wildly talented woman. And she has this quote that's basically like, you know, when I started doing this, I used the term natural because that's what I thought I wanted to do. But now as I get to understand that it really doesn't mean anything and that's not even what I want to do anyway. And it's this loaded, charged, almost political term. What I want to make is good wine and pure. And and yeah, I want to make good, true wine that I'm proud of making that, of course, is minimal intervention, of course, is not using chemical sprays, of course, is not manipulating the juice and and is not using these weird additives that, that get added to so many things. And so I think it's really the dogma that I react negatively to the dogma. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And people can articulate what they're doing. And it's easy to understand what they're doing, that they're doing it, you know, properly. Yes. And that's a natural wine by proper practices. Yes. Um, is the market getting younger? Oh, apparently, yes. I mean, I was just doing I some I mean, I think naturally theory. people die or whatever, but... but yes. Um, are, are they different consumers? Does that play well for you? Because canned spritzers is more appealing to them than a $38 Sonoma cab or something? Well, one thing that I do love, I love the statistic from the Berkshire Hathaway publication, Business Wire. This was back from November, but 85% of consumers across all age groups, driven by Gen Z and millennials, but across all age groups, are shifting purchase decisions to prioritize sustainability, which makes me so happy because it's just, it's a no-brainer. And when you think about... Uh, I, I don't know. I guess for me, organic has just always been, it's been important since day one, but then it sort of became doubly so when between, I guess this is back to work life balance a little bit, but between Henry and Ronan, I ended up having quite a few pregnancies that didn't work out and and they were not miscarriages they were called chemical pregnancies where your body changes changes and you feel that but you yeah and so I really did a deep dive into health and it was like what is going on with me and and at the time I was did you make some serious changes I did habits diet all of that yeah and I and do you directly connect that to I do I mean I mean I'm a big believer of that i just don't understand how there's not a connection between but i don't think your habits probably were so terrible before but maybe you needed a tweak or i think it was a little tweak i also think i was traveling a ton and there's a lot of radiation that we get so emotional yes more than you know physical sometimes but little things like not wearing nail polish because so much nail polish is toxic leeches into your yeah stuff yeah. like that or like that's interesting yeah. it's interesting that you brought that up um all right jordan we have to take a break we're talking to jordan salcedo jordan is the uh founder and ceo of ramona drink ramona when we come back we're going to talk a little more specifically about ramona and what goes into that little can 
Um, you're listening to The Great Nation on the Heritage Radio Network, and we'll be right back. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Okay, we are back. We are back with my guest, Jordan Salcido. Jordan Salcido is Ramona. And I want to talk about Ramona now. Um, we've been going in and out of it. Obviously, a big part of your life. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you were just getting into the business. Believe it or not, that was five years later. And to my, um, to what I see, it seems like things are going pretty well. But we'll get into that. All right. So, just quickly, how did you come up with the concept? And when was this? We broached it a little, but tighten it up. For yeah. Me. Okay. So exactly. It was like that same exact week that I, I it was like right after this MS exam, it was really one week later, I had a business trip in Italy and I was in Italy and it was sort of like all my mind could do was think about how I wanted to figure out whatever this was going to become. And I remember it was, I happened to be in Amalfi this particular evening and I was like up just with wheels turning, and then it came to me the name should be Ramona, which, which what? Ramona was my little sister, so all childhood alter ego when she was little. So she would play that out in front of you, yeah. She would just do like something like I'm Ramona, no, she would do something absurd, like throw marbles all over the kitchen floor, like right when someone would walk in, and then we'd be like, Anne-Marie, what are you doing? She would say, it wasn't me. Uh, that was Ramona. <laughs> Talk to Ramona. And so it was this... I mean, God willing, she's not bipolar or schizophrenic <laughs> today. She's okay? She okay, good. She's so funny. Uh, but it was just this sort of clever but absurd... So that stuck with you. It did, and it was always fun to but say. But why did that make sense to name it? It just... Yes, because the way that I think about Ramona to this day is that it is an alter ego to the fine wine world where ah, it shares the value system cool but it is in a can and it's brightly colored and it's you know so all of these things that fine wine doesn't necessarily have it shares that value system but but has a low barrier to entry and it's meant for so casual it's funny wine. you say fine wine because fine wine is like natural wine what does that mean yes is it a price point is it a famous maker i mean 
you're making a canned wine. Yes. Oh, canned wine. Yes. You're making a quality product, and we'll get into that. Talk to me about what goes in the can. Yeah. I mean, where is it from? You know, are you going to Mendocino and buying loose juice? Quite the opposite. I mean, tell me. Of course. You know, from the beginning, you were in Italy. I guess that inspired you that my base will be Italian wines? Sort of. So I would say I'm going to zoom out like a tiny bit and go backwards to like the harvests that I would work every fall. And it started in 2006 and I worked in... Great Burgundy place. Yes, yes. So 2006 was Domaine de Larlo. 2007 was with Alix de Monti. 2008 was a little bit with Dominique Lafon, a little bit with Are Christophe you bragging Lee. or this is part no, of the story? No, I'm just sharing this. I'm okay, just sharing this because so it's like contest. Ahead. It's not like, oh, I went, you know, okay. once I went nearby and I were, you know, it's like, so I wanted to get the best education that I could. And so I was very fortunate to look out and be able to work with people that I admire deeply from a winemaking perspective. And then there were some other, and I won't name them, but I remember working harvest in California. And like the first thing we did was we went to the yeast store and we got yeast and we got defoaming agent. And I had never even knew there was such a thing as defoaming agent. And I said, well, what's... That's not good. No. But I was like, what is the point of this? And he's like, oh, you know, like when fermentation happens and there's foam, it gets messy and I don't feel like cleaning it up. So we just add this and it's great. And so <laughs> there were like, you know, a dozen things like that versus like when I was in, I got to work with, um, it was 2012, the Munure sisters, Domin Munure Giborg. And there was like, there was a day where they were like, yeah, today we do nothing. Like there's nothing to do. You can go to Francois Frere and learn how barrels are made because there's, there's nothing to do here except for wait. And so that was just this very different concept. And so I think what I realized through the process of this sort of decade of working harvests at various places was there was this through line between wines that I felt like had a soul and had this that were like truly delicious and wines that I wanted to drink and 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 sort of yeah that I wanted in my world versus wines that I maybe had fun working harvest at but didn't really ever drink ever again and so that is why I felt like Ramona had a place in this world is because there are so many things in cans. I mean, when we launched, there weren't, there were two or three other things in cans and and it was like quite risky for us to put Ramona in a can, but it was a lower carbon footprint because there's so much fuel used to ship glass, et cetera. Um, But the reason why Ramona exists is because I felt like I could not possibly be the only person who was interested in A, something that was actually truly delicious and tasted good, but B, was not going to, yeah, was was not poisoning our bodies or the planet. And that's sort of the the low bar that I set. Sort of, I mean, obviously, I, we have much grander aspirations for Ramona, but I just don't think anything that I drink, I don't I don't want anything I drink or consume to poison our bodies or the planet. And I just also think there's such a no-brainer way to grow things thoughtfully, to use ingredients that are that are grown thoughtfully. I do believe they actually taste a lot better. And then not adding weird chemicals to them, which is why we moved production out of the U.S. and over to Italy. Because- so when you started, I'm guessing the landscape was different. There were less players. Yeah. Maybe typically, maybe I'm wrong. The product was crappier. 
<laughs> you know, there, I mean, since then there's been a handful of guys that, you know, care about what you do, mm-hmm. but I mean, you shake your head. So I want you to <laughs> respond to that. Um, so you realize that and you jumped on. So you, did you roam parts of Italy to look for farming partners and you had demands on organic sustainability? Yeah. I mean, it was, are you with people that you've been with for years, you know, that provide juice for you? Yes. So that is where we are now. So we we made our first batch, a test batch in 2016. We shipped over wine from Sicily and I had worked with that particular estate on a project that I don't focus on anymore, but um, was called Bellis. And Bellis, I think Bellis is- I wanted to ask you because it seemed like that came to an end. So you made a wine, imported it, Bellis- um, no longer exists, no need longer. to focus on this. hundred percent. Cool doing that. Talk about it another time. A hundred percent. And so we, we shipped over wine from Sicily and found a canning facility in upstate New York and all of these things that, you know, it took a lot of, that was sort of how I spent maternity leave was like figuring out a canning line and, and dealing with cola approvals, all the totally non-sexy stuff. Is but, this maternity leave at Momofuku? Yeah. Yeah. So you were still working there, launching this, took advantage of the time. Yeah, okay. because babies sleep a lot. I mean, that was the thing that yeah, nobody yeah, told yeah. me. And I, I mean, some babies don't. Apparently, I was not a very good baby. I didn't sleep as much as I guess my boys did. But uh, no, I was lucky. I had boys who slept a lot. And I think whenever you're used to working until three in the morning anyway, then it, the the rhythms didn't really throw me off my game. In So that way. all the logistics were on maternity leave. Yes, yes. And, and really everything, design, yeah. concept, the yeah. juice, yes. import, production. Yes. And then when we finally launched, so then it's canning day and, you know, everything has gone into this. You have to wait months for label approval, all these Where things. Where was it canned? So it was canned at the Red Cat, Hazlitt Red Cat Cellars in uh, Naples, New York. Okay. And I remember, so canning day. And it, is there blending? Like you have to get the fruit with yeah. the wine? Yeah. So. And, and it, can you explain to me, these are spritzers. Where do the bubbles come from? Sure. Of course. So all of these things. And, and I will also say like, we don't, we don't make it there anymore. We did our test batch there and they were really wonderful in allowing us to do that. Um, and the way like the first sort of batches I just made in my kitchen and it was something that I was thinking through too, like, oh, maybe New York state and we do, we make it a New York thing and it's Riesling and New it's York peaches. grapes. That was, that was what initially I was right. thinking about. In fact, we, we did something fun called thunder peach. Like we just tinkered with it. But in the end, I just fundamentally believe that if I'm going to be running a business, I don't want to be. I don't want to use chemicals in production. I don't, I totally disagree with uh, Roundup. I don't think it's, I think it's disgusting. I think it's, I mean, it is, it is both a neurotoxin and a carcinogen. I just, I don't think that there is a need for that. And therefore it became a very easy decision to work with grapes and ingredients in general grown in Italy, where there is a 4,000 year history. That's their practice. That's their practice. That's their climate. And they, they had, they were the very first to ban glyphosates or ban uh, Roundup back in 2016. They're always ahead of the curve within Europe and they're very, 
it's, it's just not, there's, there's no chemical lobby that's like pushing for all the things that we're sort of up against here in the U.S. And so um, organic was very important since day one. And that basically eliminated U.S. as a possibility because in order to get to a price point that I felt like people would be willing to pay, there that would not have been possible if we used or and it was also just almost impossible to find organic grapes in the so u.s i asked you before fill the blanks in for me um how is the wine carbonated and there's really no additives i well, mean do you have to do a little sulfur to protect it and i'm yeah. not like the yeah. anti-sulfur no, guy totally. i mean i understand it it occurs naturally too yeah. but do you have to do anything else with it coloring you know, isn't there the coloring story, fish bladders, bentonite, yes. uh, there's bug colors, there's unnatural oh, yeah. colors. Oh, yeah. I mean, where'd you go with all that? Okay. So there are sort of two pieces of the story. The first was our test batch. And that was the thing that I wanted to do was make sure that it could be organic and nothing artificial. And that was really important to me. And then canning day arrives and I'm told I have to use um, either potassium sorbate as a preservative, which is a carcinogen, or I can use Velcrin. And the best part of that is that I don't have to tell anyone. And I was like, what do you mean? Because you don't have to list it. Yeah. And so this is actually something that like is another. But can I put you on the spot? Yeah. Up until that point, you didn't realize that was going to happen. I had never even, of... I'd never even heard of Velcrin. I mean, like, I could no yell idea. at you and say, it sounds like you didn't do your homework. No way. No way. I, I, I'm busting on you, but so that happens. So you have to make a snap decision. What yep. happens? Yeah. In fact, they were like, oh, it turns out that this is clogging our filters. So my first thought was let's sterile filter. Like if we have to, we'll sterile filter. And they're like, oh no, this, the U.S. So the, the recipe we used for our test batch has nothing to do with the recipe that we use today because in essence, we were not. So the, the thing that was very frustrating for me in the U.S. It's like, I would say here, here are my parameters and here is our value system. And everyone along the way would say, yes, yes, yes. This is compliant. This is compliant. Oh no, we'll do it this way. And then you get to the day of where you've already purchased it. And and they're like, oh, sorry, we didn't realize. Actually, it's not. Or like, oh, now you have to add Velcrin, but don't worry, you don't have to tell anyone. And everyone else is using it anyway. And I was like, what do you mean everyone else is using it? So I. How I, does that matter? It's for me, it mattered because it just means no, it's it gross. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because everyone else is yeah. doing it doesn't mean it's right 100%. for you. 100%. Yeah, and so I that, agree with you on that. That is why we moved production to Italy. So um, where we've, we've, we've done, we've actually worked with carbonation two different ways. And in, in Italy, um, actually, so you're drinking the Amarino right now. Yes. Which is very much inspired by Aperol. And I love a good Aperol spritz, or rather I did until I read the ingredients. And it's two, Aperol is 279 grams per liter of sugar. And sugar is like a notoriously exploitive industry. So we intentionally don't ever work with sugar. And it's not good for and you. And it's not good for you. And it's, like, it's terrible for the people who have to work in these cane fields. And then uh, it's colored now ever since Campari bought it in 2006. It's colored with FD and C40 um, and red and yellow six and whatever. So it's, it's dyed with these coal tar derivative dyes that um, cause cancer and are really gross. And so anyway, ours is colored with organic carrot and pumpkin concentrate. Uh, we do carbonate in line. So that is a decision that I made. So what does that mean? Oh, it means that you add bubbles, like you add CO2 in the canning line. How, what are the options? 
Well, you could also do a natural. Natural? Yeah. Which yeah, we, but not at this price point well, and in the can. We or did it and it didn't it taste good? as good. No, it was like less effervescent. and it was, Like, you know the way they make Prosecco in yes, big tanks? Was exactly it similar right. to yes, that? a pressurized tank. Okay. And so it was sort of like, okay, we, yeah. So then you have, you have your wine and then we actually did have the, the way that you then ferment is you add sugar. So it's like, okay, we're adding sugar to do another carbonation, which and then the carbonation, so then, quote unquote, that's like a natural way of doing carbonation. But it it just, for me, that wasn't what was important. And what has always been important for me about Ramona is the ingredients that we're using and the things that we're not putting in. So rather than adding any sort of weird additive or stabilizer or um neurotoxin we just pasteurize in line in warm in warm water so the cans so Ramona get so it's the wine we blend with the juice so the blood orange is organic Sicilian blood orange juice the uh, lemon is organic Sicilian lemons um, the color from the amarino is organic carrot and pumpkin and then we do add a little bit of beet juice a beet extract for the ruby grapefruit for a while, yeah, and so it's so everything is organic. What about vegetables. grape varietals? Do you work with a small handful? Yes. Does it vary? It's, Does it, here's yeah. my last question, yeah, and then yeah. you could. Does a certain grape varietal work better? Like, is this grape better with amarino than with? ruby grapefruit or you use these three varietals where where are you with that we have now we started with we started that way and then did a lot of taste test and have realized that as a blend of trebbiano and zabibo it works great as a base wine for us so you're blending trebbiano and zabibo yes does it vary every is it 50 yeah. 50 is one it, a little more dominant it totally varies by vintage by okay. design so right like, the vintage should dictate a little more Trebbiano than Zabibo yeah. just because like, characteristic. Or like, oh no, the, you know, if there's hail in the vineyard one year, right. it's like, it's sort there's of less awesome. Trebbiano. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's, it's basically been true to those. Um, yes. Ever since cool. we moved production to Italy. Um, so how many different flavors are we up to? Six? Six. Let's tick them off. Okay. Go in order. Okay. Uh, all right. So we have the ruby grapefruit, okay. the, the OG. Then we have the Meyer lemon and the blood orange. So those I think of as the citrus sisters. Those are cool fruits. Go ahead. <laughs> then we have the dry grapefruit which is uh, sort of the, it's like the dry version of the original. So a lot of people asked like, oh, will you make a 90 calorie version? Or, oh, we love Ramona, we love the flavor, but like, can you make a dry version? So we, we launched Ramona. Is it less calories? It's less calories, yep, it's 90 So calories. it's the OG, it's the Miller Light of the, okay. Yeah, we, All right. we so call that's, it dry, not shy. What are we up to, four? That's four. And then the Amarino, which is like the organic Aperol spritz without artificial ingredients. And then uh, the the sixth is actually a dry sparkling rosé. What grape? Yes. Um, Same or 50 different? 50% each. Split it down the middle every year. Uh, Montepulciano and Sangiovese. From oh, Ab so it's... There you go. Too. Yeah. Very cool. And it's delicious. So it's, it really is. It's funny because the reason we made it is because the standard hotel asked us to. They were like, hey, we have the beer garden and people want sparkling rosé in a can and everything else. Is yeah, I think you have to be in that game. It was, yeah. Which leads me to my next question, which is 
are canned wines, and I'll give you that your canned wines and spritzes, are they just for the beach, <sighs> the pool, or so the rooftop? Yeah. It's, I mean, don't you want it not to be that? 100%. So where are we at with that? So I have one, not every night, but I would say four times a week at home, just poured over a large ice cube. We're seeing them pop up in cocktails. In fact, I was at Lupa. Um, I've seen it too, yes. where it's a base. for Yes. And so it's so fun to see people using it as an ingredient. And then more and more, I get photos of friends or parents of my children's friends who will send me photos drinking Ramona and they're like, yeah, you know, I wanted a glass of wine tonight, but my husband didn't. And so I'm drinking a Ramona. And, and I think the use case for wine, both inside, I, like there's a, there's a new term that I'm hearing, uh, the home premise. So there's the <laughs> off premise, the on premise, and now the That's home. That's new to me. That's a good premise, one. Right? <laughs> so I do think there's, right. It's, it's convenient and it's, single serve and it allows so it was great for those things but you think it should go beyond that why not you know pop a can open before after dinner yeah i mean and i really think this is like i really go back and forth with this because we're getting more and more requests to make a still white wine a still red wine can? and a sparkling yeah because people are now and that's the sort of the crazy thing to me is you see more and more interest in cans in general and, um, so I had Gary Vaynerchuk on the show a couple of times, and we were talking about marketing, which I want to talk to you about. And he kind of, it wasn't a story, he weaved a concept. He said, if you went to Uruguay, which makes good wine, but not well known, and you went to the better to not producers, mm -hmm. and you bought the wine cheap, and you made it well, and you canned it, and you marketed the crap out of it, mm -hmm. like great label. It, you know, everything I'm talking about, you've done already. And you put it like in Kim Kardashian's hand. Nobody gives a shit about the wine. Now, the premise is it's pretty good wine. I mean, Uruguayan Tanat is, you know, top of the game and all that. But it's all about marketing. I've taken exception to the fact that you've done a really good job marketing. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I see a lot of social media I mean, the can is inspired by what? Russian industrial art or something, right? Yeah, which is funny because I learned recently that that entire... Where did that come from? Well, it came from this notion that great art is for everyone and it doesn't belong in a gold frame or in a so collector's So it's for the home. people. It's for everyone. Okay. Exactly. Like you were saying earlier at the beginning of the show. Who, you want everyone to try it. What's the demographic that's drinking it? Yeah, it's so interesting. So we're seeing- Is it women? It's a lot of women online, but then we see like it's NFL players. It's like people that I have no idea how they even know about Ramona, but it's showing up on their Instagram feeds. And so it's- So that's organic, it's different organic. organic. Yes. Do you feel the need to democratize it and, you know, marketing should be more dude oriented or you can't- It's so funny. I, I was just thinking that because of this past week, I've gotten so many tags from like amazing men who are tagging, tagging Ramona or tagging me or sending me photos. So I think one thing that I don't believe is that Ramona is for women. I think it's for anyone who, who wants to, who shares in this value system. And that's, that's what we're seeing is this. The marketing 
looks that way though. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Um, that is something- I love it. And I'm not saying, wow, this is off or it's too heavy yeah. this way. I just yeah. know that that's kind of where and it I is. I think we launched with a pink can and like, and we launched with a pink can during a moment where I felt like I really needed to take a feminist stand sort of in the midst of all the things that was sort of going on. It was like, we will be bold and we will be pink and we will be great. And those, those will be pillars. And then as we've expanded- That's the foundation. Those are the, uh, yes. However, I think, you know, to your point, like we see so many people, men and women, but almost more men loving a Merino, drinking it, tagging, tagging it online on social media. And so I, I do is, think. Is Amarino potentially flavor wise, like a more guyish thing or. I don't think you can say that. Because, yeah, because spritzes are not necessarily, totally. you know, an Aperol or Campari is not a guy thing. Exactly. It's exactly. an everything thing. It's an everything yeah. thing, but it's distinctly not a female thing, which I think. A right. I guess thing. that's what I was getting yeah. to. Um, all right. I want to wrap up, but I'm not wrapping the show up because I want to subject you to our wine list. And then I want to taste the Ramona with you and just do some observations and evaluations. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you is Ramon is a certified women's business enterprise. Yes. What does that mean? So it sounds just, cool to me. <laughs> is it real or it just yeah, sounds cool? Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's so much time and paperwork going to that thing. Um, it, it just means that Ramona is certified women owned, which means that women own at least 51% of the business. Um, do you, spend time networking as much as you can with other women business owners? Do you? I would say other business owners, yes. I mean, and a lot of them happen to be women because- right. I just, hate to separate it, yes. but in this case, I'm just Yeah, curious. and I think, but I think it's funny because yes, in some ways, yes. And then the other thing that I spend a lot of time on is I listen to a lot of books on Audible, I feel like that's what I'll do if I'm putting... What's the last one you were listening to? The last one I'm listening to actually is the Netflix one called No Rules Rules. But the one I continue to go back to is Jim Collins, BE 2.0, that he co-wrote with Bill Lazier, his mentor at Stanford. And then Bill passed away. It's a good one. It's such a good one. And it just, it's all about values. And so it just, that is the way that I think about building Ramona and continuing to grow Ramona. So you're always curious and inquisitive to see what people are doing, get new ideas and all that. Yes. That's a good thing. And also thing. studying what works, like what has right. stood the test of time. So yeah. all, next on the list is Good to Great, which is another Jim Collins book that I've not read. I have to check those out. All right. We don't let anybody leave without doing the wine list. We subject them to it. Five questions. Everybody who's preceded you, including yourself, <laughs> has answered these questions. And I'm going to go back and compare. All right. First question. What are you drinking now? What's in the fridge? Has the change of seasons influenced what you're drinking? Do you have to drink for work? Like, are you tasting Italian stuff? Does Robert have an influence? Like, hey, try this, or I just got that. What are you drinking now? Yeah. Give me a few things. Okay, a few things. All right, I'm trying to think of our fridge right now. All right, I often drink Ramona, which is you the said, obvious. Crack uh, one open over an ice cube at night with like a little lemon twist. And then, selfless plug, go ahead. <laughs> 
don't know me. Then, but it, but that's I, I'm trying to think of honestly what what do we drink? Uh, there is often a bottle of Rouleau Marceau in the fridge, and I can always thank Robert for that. Uh, it's delicious every time. Um, what am I loving? Okay. So um, Rouleau Marceau is as good as it gets. That's ball and type stuff, but give me other things. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to look up this um, label, actually. Because Was that the Chiara? Okay, the, the Chiara Condello is a wine that I love. It was, it's like the most, it was my favorite discovery of the last six months, hands now, down. where is it from? Yes, it's from Montalcino. Montalcino. Uh, unless it's from Chianti, it's from Tuscany. And, and what's is, the grape? Is it Sangiovese? Sangiovese? Is it a blend or straight up? Straight Sangiovese. Okay. Is it a organic or, you know, a, yes. a thoughtful producer? Thoughtful producer. All right, I'm going to remind you to... Wait, hold on, I have another one. La email me that okay. so I have the right info. And then La Tosca. So this was a... Um, it's it's from the Canary Islands. I had this last week. It was delicious. So um, La Tosca, it's a... Um, one of the, actually, one of the mentees of the Envinate uh, group. It's not the Envinati guys. It's somebody who had been with them. Who learned from them. And then wow, they, cool. they supported this person in that's helping cool. find the vineyard. And the, the wine is amazing. And then I'm going to have another one for you real fast. Uh, what's another one? Oh, this was another great one. Was um, It was a Riesling. And uh, uh, Staffelterhof. Spell. Uh -huh. S-T-A-F-F, -F, like Frank Frank, E-L-T-E-R-H-O-F. Germany or Austria? Germany. Drone Hofburger is the vineyard. 2006 was the vintage from the Mosul. It's really beautiful. All right. Um, those are good. That's enough. Okay. All right. <laughs> no, no, those are all really good. They're very interesting and some are eclectic. I like that. That's, you know, we want to turn people on to some cool wines. Second question is the goofiest. Favorite wine and food pairing. Not something, obviously, mm. eat every night, every month. Yeah. And not what you think is a good wine and food pairing, but what do you like? Like, you eat that burgundy and the roast chicken and you go, ooh, ah. Uh, yeah. What is it for you? For me, it's grower champagne and fried zucchini blossoms. Is like, if I could only... Stuffed? Stuffed. If it's stuffed, it would be like with the faintest, tiniest amount of like an excellent buffalo mozzarella. Okay. So grower champagne, because that's good with the fried yes. and the zucchini blossoms a little vegetable. Yes. It's I don't like, think anyone has ever given me so that answer. Good. So good. Um, I mean, it could be anything fried, but since, since it's dream pairing. All right. Well. Third question. The question is your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. So let me say a few things to that. Number one, by mentioning stuff and not mentioning others doesn't mean you don't like other places places or left your friend out. Like you bump into somebody and go, hey, I heard the Grape Nation. How come? These are just a couple of things. The second thing is Robert, your husband, is involved with a restaurant group that includes Pasquale Jones. Not anymore. Oh, he's out of that? Ever since 2019. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. I knew he got in. I wasn't sure when he got out. All right. Yeah. So then we don't, I know you eat there every now and then, um, and they're terrific places. But give me some favorite wine restaurant and or bars that you love the list. Yeah. The people that are there putting it together, you know, know their stuff. The yeah. vibe is great. 
What what comes to mind? Give me yeah. a couple, two, three things. Well, you and I were talking earlier, but for me, my first go-to is always King. So that's perfect. Annie with the wine, you know, Claire and... Um, Jess. Jess. Yes. With the food. Perfect example. Yes. All right. Give me one or two more. Okay. Where else do I love to go? Um... I always think Atla has a fun mix if I'm in the mood for a delicious margarita. I think they, they do a great job. And I used to love their... Atla's very good. Atla's very good. I think Via Carota is another one that does a really good That's, job. Um, Jody. Rita and Jody. Jody, yes. Exactly. Yes. Um, all right. So those are good ones. Those are all good ones. They all tend to be downtown and not far from I where know. you live. All right. <laughs> Fourth question. And I think it was different when I asked you because it's morphed to something else. The question is favorite all-time wine. Mm. And here's what I was fishing for. Okay. okay, you worked at 11 Madison. You worked at Momofuku. You talked about putting the coal list together. What I was fishing for was what was like the most rare expensive wine that Jordan you know, drink. What's your? I don't care about that anymore. Okay, yeah. Think back. What's the wine in your lifetime? Whether it's Ramona, whether it was Robert, whether it was your career, that was either the gateway, life changing, memorable. Oh yeah. And it could be more than one or two. Okay. All right. So I have a few, and not in order, but I'll say first off, Stella di Campalto. And I, I have visited twice, and the first time it was, you know, I didn't know anything about anything, and that was just, it was just fun to be there. And the second time, I happened to be in Montalcino for something else, and I asked if I could come visit, and she said yes, and it was harvest time. Mm. And I, um, and I heard these monks in the background, and I thought I was going crazy, and I just, then I asked her, I said, I, it sounds like I hear monks chanting do I actually hear anything? And she said, she was a little embarrassed. And she said, yes, you know, it's not something that, you know, I, I don't really have this playing, but you're here at harvest. And I, I have it every year. I play these monks, the Gregorian chants from the monks at the Abai Sant Antibo down the way. And it's just something I do. And one year I didn't, and the fermentations got stuck. And so, so it's for the grapes? For the grapes fermenting. Not the workers or herb. No. That's but, crazy. But the thing that floored me and has always floored me about her wines is that they, and everyone everywhere, likes to compare their red wines to Burgundy and say, oh, my wine is Burgundian. And she would never say that about her own wine, but that was just something that struck me about her wines is how she makes the Sangiovese that is so elegant and reminds me so much of Burgundy. And so I go down, I, I put on running shoes and I run to the Abai Sant'Antimo and I will read the sign outside and it's like, here, here is Abai Sant'Antimo. It was started by a group of, I believe it was Cistercian monks who had left Burgundy. This like one group of monks left Burgundy, sets up shop here at Abai Sant'Antimo. And then those monks make these chants, get put onto a CD and end up in Jesus. her winery. And for me, that was just this one of these moments of like, wait a minute, there's something else going on here. There's some, there is something more than like, you know, a, a recipe of winemaking of grapes plus, you know, it's just, there's something more. Yeah. In truly great wine. And so that was... I mean, it's the greatest Rosso, the yes. Montalcino I've ever yes. had. Forget the Brunello. Yes. All right, so that's one. That's you one. said there's more than one. Yes. I agree with you. And our friends at King did one of the few Stella wine nights. Yes. 
She had more Stella on the bar than I've seen anywhere in New York. I remember seeing that on Instagram, actually. All right, what's the other one? Or this was okay. So this was a courtship wine, sort of like the courtship wine when Robert and I were just starting to date, and I at the time was a cook at Danielle, and Robert was a part owner of this restaurant called Crew, and he and I had had a few dates at this point, and he had always spoken about this winemaker named. Henri Jaillet. And I knew it was gone there. <laughs> and so, you know, this Henri Jaillet captures my attention. He's the guy who, you know, this little guy who basically turns a, a Jerusalem artichoke garden during the war into Crow Parentu, the most storied wine of all time. Anyway, so, um, or one of the most storied wines of all time. So this is 2006, which was two years before the, there, there previously was a, a wine tax in Hong Kong that has since been lifted, I think in 2008. But it used to be that, um, yeah, basically this was before the Hong Kong wine market opened up. This was, this uh, people didn't know or love Burgundy in the same way back then as as has happened. So Robert had some Henri Jaillet on the list and, and he had a few bottles of, of wine from the nine, it was the 1980 Henri Jaillet Von Romanet Premier Cru Le Brule. And he poured it to me blind. And I just remember it was like one of those rare nights off because I think I was working six to seven nights a week at that point in my life. And so this was like a random Thursday and I'm off and I'm sitting at crew at the bar and Robert pours this wine into this glass. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew that it was magic. And it was like, it was just this kind of thing where it didn't matter. It was like the world stopped and you just took a sip of this wine and and it was so meaningful and so profound. You're and, not wrong about that. Oh, and it's funny, I had Tim Mondavi on last week and same question, 80s Jair. Wow. Not 80, but 80s. Yeah. But he wasn't yeah. sure, you know, could have very easily been that. Um, all right, so those are two beautiful, but more importantly, meaningful wines. Yes. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned it, but we post all your uh, wine list answers online mm -hmm. so people could share. Final question, and there's no reason why you can't answer this one. I want you to recommend best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks retail. The setup has always been my kids are in their mid late 20s. They can't show up at a dinner or give a gift of a crappy supermarket wine, but it's hard to drop 40, 45. So how do you impress in that price range? Give me a red reco and a white reco. Okay. And you can give me category, like Muscadet, I always say. Yeah. Not bad for the money. Totally. I actually, Muscadet is a great call. I think um, the Uli Stein Riesling, like just his base entry level reason. is it in that 20s it's range so good it's like 20 to 25 it's okay so there. we're there so uli stein is that von boden is yeah, that that's okay von boden. exactly so that's a good one for the white for i'm the white. a big you know riesling austrian german yes that's german right um how about a red I, my go-to since my very, very first wine list ever has always been the Moncourt so from J.L. Chauve Cote Rhone. M-O-N? Uh, yeah. So the, all right. So it's Jean-Louis Chauve's sort of right. negotiant label and it's Mon, exactly, M-O-N and then Cor, C-O-E-U-R, uh, means my heart. 
And what's the grape? It's Syrah? Syrah. 100%? Exactly. No, I think it's like mostly There may be Syrah. some of their own, other, their, yeah. the other own grapes? It might. It actually could very well be 100% Syrah. It, it probably changes depending on the vintage, but it it's it's Syrah. I believe maybe there's a little Grenache in there. Um, so what what's the cheap... Um, What's the cheap Rhone wine, you know, that you could pick up for 12? Is it not oh. Crow's Hermitage? No. Which one is the it? Cote de Rhone, Cote the Cote d'Aron. Cote d'Aron. Yeah, yeah. Is this better than that? Yes, because it, it meets his value system. So okay. Because it's Shav and, and so his whole value system. And what he's doing is he basically trains his neighbors who, like, don't know how to farm organically. I got and it. He's like, here's how you do it. All right. So those are two good ones. I will post those. We got to wrap up. So now, every week at the end of the show, we have a feature called the Weekly Wine Sip. When I have winemakers in here or psalms, I'll ask them to pick a wine. With you, you are the winemaker, and you make Ramona. So let's taste a little Ramona and talk about it. Um, I started the show with the OG, the Ruby Grapefruit, and it was delicious, refreshing, proper amount of bubbles. Yay. Which I like. It's not too effervescent, and there's not a flattish to it. Um, you know, like I said, great pool, beach, rooftop, but you could drink this anywhere, anytime. Be good with a charcuterie platter, you know, that type of stuff. Um, and then we opened your newest, the Amarino, right? And to me, there was a little more evolution to this. There was something very interesting, and tell me if I'm wrong. I got a little petrol on the nose, almost like it was... And I know that's the bitter. And I don't say that as a negative at all. I think the bitters, did, am I on the wrong track with the petrol description yeah. or how would you? No, it's so funny. Yeah, no, I get a little hint of that too. It's um, To me, that's interesting. People go, oh shit, that sounds terrible. No, 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 no. It's very bitter, but not too bitter. So you drink this because you want that profile. Yes. If you're going to drink this and go, ooh, that's too bitter, this isn't for you. Totally. But, you know, people's tastes are now evolved and, you know, they the whole bitters market. I mean, we do a show called The Speakeasy. We have a whole case of bitters here and all I'm that. I'm admiring it right Yeah. Now. So what are the bitters? Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, let's see, a few different things. There's a little rhubarb. Okay. There is gentian root. There's bitter orange is the main the main element. Is here. bitter orange the juice or the no, rind? It's, it's a fruit that's called. Oh, bitter, it's yeah, the actual. Okay. The actual bitter orange, and then a few different botanicals as well. So it's almost like gin, where you conjure up this mixture yes. of. Yes. We're like, okay, we want it to be bitter because yeah, really the 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 inspiration was like that sort of bright aperol spritz. Yeah. Um, or I should say Italian spritz because Aperol came at the same time with these other, um, was it Aperol, Campari, Select all popped up around the same time in the early 20th century and grew out of the Italian futurist art movement, which spawned the Italian futurist cocktail movement, which was all these Italian artists and then bartenders who were tired of being tethered to the past. And they were like, no, we want new things. We don't want our identity wrapped up in the Renaissance or all these things that have come before us. Like we cool. are creating the future. Very cool. Let's talk mm -hmm. about, so the, 
I first had the ruby grapefruit. You could put that in the citrus category because you said there's ruby, Meyer lemon, and what was the third one? Blood orange. Blood orange. Um, do we think food with this stuff? Like, it, it, like what am I going to – if I'm doing a meal – with those three, what goes well with that? Oh, my goodness. For me, I always think of, like, snacks with this. So okay. Like olives, Marcona almonds, like bread Something with, with salt totally, or... Like bread with butter and anchovies would be so yummy. Oh, yeah. What about charcuterie, sliced totally. meat? Totally. Like uh, super sad or... The prosciutto. Prosciutto. It'll go well with those, and right? even, cr like, crudite. Like a crudite with... Trying to think of what? Like a green goddess dressing. Mm. What about the Amarino? Does the profile change on that or similar foods? It's so interesting. Now, I, I love how you are thinking about this. I think of them, all right, so blood orange, definitely like a different ball game, I think. Like for me, it's just so much, it's so much richer. And, and the blood orange juice comes from Sicily and it's really dark red because Sicilian blood oranges are very red. The best. And they're the best. And so I think of that. For me, it's like pulled pork sandwiches or like barbecue. It could hold like, up to that richness, fat, and sauce. Yes. Because yes. a lot of times you have to pair to the sauce, not necessarily the meat. Totally. Or even the fat. So it totally. goes well with that. So those are good situations. Um, normally, I don't ask this, but I think this benefits you. Um, it's sold mostly in four packs. Yes. And most of them are singular, Amarino, blah, blah, blah. But do you have a variety pack too? So online we have a variety okay. pack and it's a four pack of all six flavors. And then, um, and actually now ever since January, 2001, um, the, the U.S. government, the TTB, decided that it is okay to sell individual cans. There was sort of a question about that. So you can go into a bodega and see it? Oh, that's where it gets complicated. It, it turns out you not need... Not a bodega. Not a bodega because you need a boat, a grocery license. Ah, this okay. is like the, the So where is it singular can? At a, at a wine retailer? Lots of wine retailers. Like if you went into your local wine store, yeah. you could see champagne, cold exactly. white wine, and loose cans. Of exactly. Um, and tell me this, if you're comfortable, give me the retail price range. Because yeah. I think it's been, because I think for four cans of this stuff, you're spending about what? So it depends. If you're at Whole Foods during the month of June and July, it's on promotion uh, for about $14. I think it's $13.99 for a four-pack. But usually it's about $16 retail. And then it depends on what city and that kind of thing. Right. But, um, so up it's, to, it's up to three 20. and change to four bucks and change a can, which is... Which I should say it's up, sixteen bucks. Up to Does this five. add up to a seven fifty or is it more? More than that. So yeah. So there you go. Bottle enough. Your Honor, I rest my case. <laughs> Buy this stuff. All right, Jordan. I got to get you out of here, and I got to wrap up. And Armin has been giving me the googie eyes from the uh, engineer booth, but he's been hanging in there. So let me do a quick wrap up. And I want to get some info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. The reason I tell you to subscribe is 
the podcast will be delivered to you automatically. You don't have to seek it out. And what would be better than subscribing to the podcast, getting up in the morning, and there's Jordan lying there right next to you in bed, ready to talk about her life and her spritzes, right? So is that a compelling reason to subscribe? There's no reason not to subscribe, all right? Follow us on Facebook, at The Grape Nation. Um, on Instagram, we're at S Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. I know that can be confusing, but you could link to us on both of those with the uh, hashtag The Grape Nation. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we'll post Jordan's wine list, and I'll give you a little more information on our weekly wine sip, the flavors, and all that stuff on our social media sites uh, between now and next week. Um, Jordan. If we want to find you and Ramona on social media, let's talk first product and then let's talk personal. Where do we go? Of course. Um, thank you so much. So product is at drink Ramona, R-A-M-O-N-A. And um, I am at Jordan Salcido. Okay. And on the at drink Ramona, like you said, you can order stuff online. You, you go DTC, yes. plus you can get info. Yes. It's a fairly rich site, you know, with how you, a lot of things we discussed are on the Should site. So we do a special Grape Nation code and it's like, give a spritz and you can have 15% off. Let's try it. What's the code? I, is this legal? Yeah, I think so. So just, tell me what to do. You're better at this than me. <laughs> it just means when you go to the website, drinkramona.com. And you say? And you type in at checkout, it'll ask you, you know, you put in, you know, a blood orange or a amarino or, or. And you type in what? And the then, Grape Nation? Yeah. No, type in give a spritz. I'm giving you a code that give I Give a just, spritz. Yeah, give a okay. spritz. And you will get what? 15% off. Okay. So my peeps. If you want to try Ramona or you need more, go to the site, type in... Give a spritz. Give a spritz. All one word, no space. 15% off. Good deal. Thanks to Sam. All right. So I want to thank our guest, Jordan Salcido, from tearing herself away from a very busy life, as we discussed. Um, as always, I want to thank our engineer, Armin, for hanging in there. He should be home by uh, the end of dinner tonight. Um, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.